Well, welcome to the podcast. Got a really great guest for you today. Dr. Jan Fried is an expert on leadership. We talked about some really great topics, including how to lead with a legacy. So how to lead in a way that leaves a good legacy behind. We talked about how leaders create safety and allow people to voice their opinion and really grow within organizations. And we talked about how to be a good leader without letting your ego get in the way. This is a great podcast. I'm so glad you joined today. Let's get started. Well, hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. Welcome to the Mission Driven You podcast. So today I've got a really great guest. Her name is Dr. Jan Fried, and she's a successful leadership consultant. She's an accomplished author. We're going to talk about her latest book, which is Leading with Wisdom, Sage Advice from 100 Experts. And what she did was she went out and interviewed some of the most prominent leadership gurus. You're going to recognize a lot of these names. And she shares key insights on the importance of keeping your ego in check if you want to be a powerful leader. So I'm really excited to look and at into what she's gained and the to gain from her wisdom. This is the wisdom that she's gained from some of the most important leaders in our in our time. So if you are ready to learn from a great leadership expert, then let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Fried. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. This is great. So as I told you in the green room before, we always start with one question, which is, tell us the story of somebody that made a difference for you. It could be a teacher, mentor, but when you look back on your life, you're like, wow, yeah, they were, that was a, that person was a difference maker for me. Well, that's a really easy question for me because the first name that pops up is Dr. Elmer Burak. And Elmer was the chair of the PhD program in management at the University of Illinois, Chicago, when I met him. Now, I'd already had my PhD. I'd completed it from a totally different institution. And I met him very, I, I think, magic, or it's magical, because it's very ironic that I would have met him at this conference in Chicago. And he was only there because he was asked by a former PhD student of his to be a discussant and he was a discussant on my paper. And actually, I kind of tell the story in my book. Now, I dedicated my Leading with Wisdom book to Elmer. But my latest book, actually, Will, is Breadcrumb Legacy, How Great Leaders Live a Life Worth Remembering. And in that book, I kind of tell a story how I met Elmer. And then I end my last chapter is What Would Elmer Do? So there's no doubt. I wouldn't have any of my books. I have six books. I wouldn't have any of them or many of my research articles if it hadn't been for Elmer. So that's an easy question for me. Elmer died at age 82 in 2012, but I knew him so well that I, you know, I think about him all the time. I love that. I love that answer. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And I love that question because it People usually light up. They're like, oh, that person. <laughs> now, for you, it's somebody you're really deeply connected to. But I, I also love the question because often we hear of people that have passed on or they've <laughs> passed off of this earthly orb, but they're still contributing. So yeah. so Elmer is still happening through your voice. You're still That's sharing That's his very lessons. Cool. I love that. Yeah, we uh, we all, I think our one of our great goals should be to be good ancestors. So I, I love that. I love that answer. Thank you. I want to start with with your book, and because I, I want to start the, the book leading with wisdom, and then okay. I, breadcrumb legacy is something we'll get to. That's okay. a fascinating concept to me. But I want to start with 
leading with wisdom because you got to meet these are people I want to talk to. Dan Pink, Margaret Wheatley. I mean, you got to meet some really great people. Let's talk about the book and what you learned. And I'm particularly interested in this question of, of ego and how it, how it relates you know, to how leaders lead. Okay. Well, it's kind of interesting because I can kind of weave the books together. In 2013, my book, Leading with Wisdom, came out. And I actually interviewed more than 100 sages, but my editor liked 100. So we kept with uh, 100, but it came out in 2013, but I really started it about in uh, 2005. And it's kind of an interesting story because I had been granted a sabbatical, but I needed a research project. I was teaching full-time at a small liberal arts college and Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, had just come out. And I was teaching business management and leadership. So I decided I, you know, I had to work an um, an hour. My college was an hour out of town. So I had a guest speaker for my classes. And I said, no, I'm going to go hear Jim Collins because it was during the day. So I go to Jim Collins and I'm determined to have a a little bit of a conversation with him. So I'm the very, I wait till the very end. I'm the very last person in line to get him to autograph my book. And I asked him, I said, you know, I'm going to be on sabbatical? Can I come study with you? Can I shadow you? Can I, because at the time he was kind of the guru. Yeah. And can I study with you? Can I learn from you? He said, well, I've never been asked that question before. And I held up this page that I had torn out of training magazine from 1999. And it was in my Franklin planner. Then we all carried (laughs) Franklin planners and I pull it out pictures on it. And I said, you know, I've been carrying this since 1999. You know, I'd really like to talk with you, learn from you. And he said, all right, here's my card. Give me a call. You know, you, you email me. Let's set up a time to talk. I will talk to you for an hour free. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah. So it just turns out that his wife had been just diagnosed with breast cancer. I think she's fine now. But, you know, he said, I can't really, you know, have you do what you think you want to do. And that's come out and shadow me. But he said, let's talk by phone. So we did. And I was actually kind of the director of a, of a speaker's program at the college. And so I had looked into what would it cost to get Jim Collins to come to campus. And at that time, he was charging $5,000 for an hour of coaching yeah. or $45,000 for a half day, you know, a presentation and then maybe a workshop. Well, we couldn't afford any of that. But so he said, I'll talk to you free. Okay, five, you know, okay, I'll take you up on. And after, you know, he just asked me a lot of questions and he said, well, you love leadership. You love to interview people. And he said, everybody's got their twist and take on it. Five principles, seven rules, you know, 15 commitments. You know, he said, why don't you be the one tying it all together? So then I started approaching all these people, mostly over email, some in person, if I had the chance. I would connect with people on professional conferences or if I was going to be in their area. And then I analyzed the data and every chapter in that book became a theme. Mm. One chapter in that book is leaders don't let ego win. And that also is a a chapter, a totally revised chapter in breadcrumb legacy. And then another chapter that resonated the most with people actually was leaders live their legacy. And so then I did a deep dive into legacy and then that became breadcrumb legacy. So I can talk a little bit about ego if you want me to do that. 
Yeah, I would. Before you do, though, let me just, for people listening, because I think there's a great lesson here, which okay. is that oftentimes leaders are more approachable than we realize. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, here's a story where it was an hour, but an hour with Jim Collins. I mean, how amazing is that? And I have found in my own experience that it's often easier to, it's it's not easier, but it's often leader, some leaders are more accessible than we realize. And so there is great value in reaching out to folks when you feel that impulse. I would just wanted to kind of put right. that in as a mini no, commercial think- for my folks. Yeah, and I think that's very true. And what I would say is I call Breadcrumb Legacy my COVID book because I do work, I do speaking, workshops, coaching, and that kind of dried up during COVID. So even though I had started this book before COVID, I really focused on it during COVID. And I was able to get some high-powered leaders because they were stuck at home too. (laughs) So it was, you know, they're kind of like, sure, yeah, I'm home. We can interview, you know, using Zoom. So, So that was good. Well, here's what I would say about ego. If I had to say one thing that causes most leaders to to go bad, and it would be the ego. In fact, I have a workshop called Why Good Leaders Go Bad. And it's typically about the ego. And when I ask people in workshops, how many of you have worked for a bad leader and the hands just shoot up? I also say, you know, I don't think most people wake up in the morning and say, you know, today I'm going to be a bad leader. Right. But if you're not really aware of what, how the ego tries to protect you and how the ego manifests itself in negative ways, then you can't control it. So the negative ways are things such as micromanaging, over-controlling, defensiveness, jealousy, greed. You know, I think we've seen some very current examples of young leaders letting their ego just take over. And one would be Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos. Another would be uh, Adam Newman with WeWork. Yeah. Another yeah. would be Sam Bankman Freed. Bankman Freed mm-hmm. with uh, crypto. You know, yeah, I mean, just absolutely. Ego, egos running wild and out of control and greed. Anyway, those are all kinds of behaviors that can create a very toxic environment for everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. And you left Martin Shkreli off of that list as well. Okay, and what's, sure. what's interesting is all four of those people were on the cover of Forbes 400. Sure. And then another one, he actually, I think, got fired. The the founder of Uber, you know, yeah. was creating such a big clinic. Yes. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there are all these current examples of people just letting their ego run wild and lots of suffering. People suffered because of it. Yeah. Like, I'd love for you to put on your analyst hat here or your professor hat. Like, do you think part of that is that we think when we get into leadership positions, we think that's how we're supposed to act. We think we're supposed to be the ones in control, the ones in charge, or is it that high ego people tend to move into big influential positions? I mean, it's probably not an either or, but I'm curious what, what you think, like, why does that happen? What yeah. What is it that creates these ego-driven leaders? Yeah. Well, that's an excellent question. I think power has something to do with it, sure. for sure. But I think really that for a long time, we've had um, this model of command and control, yeah. you know, and that you're a leader and you tell people what to do. And in many times, it is more efficient if you just tell people what to do. 
but it's not effective. It goes against everything about servant leadership. Right. It is it may be efficient at times, but it's not effective. And it's not at all. It's the opposite of empowering others. Right. So what I think is really a big silver lining of COVID is workers now, employer, employees rather, are in the driver's seat. And they're, they're saying, you know, we, we want a different environment. We, right. um, you know, COVID gave people time to pause, reboot, reset, and really think about you know, am I doing the kind of work I want to do where I want to do it with the people with whom I want to work? And so therefore, aspects of servant leadership, compassion, understanding, empathy have really risen to be more front and center. And leaders are going to have to change because that's why the great resignation, you know, people are saying, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to work for that person anymore. A good friend of mine, his boss just resigned. And I think there was some pressure to resign. And he was a terrible boss in everything that I heard. So, you know, again, I think employees are in the driver's seat and leaders have to change. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more as somebody who works with organizations on culture. COVID was probably the single biggest game changer since I don't know, World War II, maybe it's, 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 it's big. It's really big. What did you learn as you were talking to all these great leaders? What did you learn about maybe the way they keep ego in check? Or are there some practices? Are there some sort of takeaways, some lessons people could say, oh, okay, here's what I do to lead well without being an ego driven, you know, crazy person? Sure. Well, I mentioned when we first met that I wrote two books on continuous improvement. Yeah. And several articles. And when you have continuous improvement in your bloodstream, is what I used to say to the students, then people know that you're open to feedback. You can't believe in getting better if you don't want some advice and feedback. And so, again, it kind of goes back to your culture piece. Leaders have to create an environment where people feel like there's no retribution, like they really can tell you. And I would know because I would say to students, I, I, and I, this could be a whole nother podcast, but I have feedback mechanisms when I'm teaching and I would do them about every three weeks, not just at the end, because those are for the college, but mine are to help me make that a better class while the students are still in it. And so I have different kind of feedback mechanisms. And I would say to the students, you know, you can say this is a terrible course, but tell me how to make it better. Can't just, you know, I said, I'm looking for solutions. And again, I'm also trying to train them how to give appropriate feedback and how to come with solutions. So I'm really trying to model what I want them to do when they get out of college. And I knew that I was getting through when students would start sending me what, you know, kind of an aspect of my feedback tool via email. You know, Dr. Freed, I think you might want to know this. If you did this, if you did that. And I knew that I was getting through to them then. You know, so I think that's one thing. Leaders need to, you know, not be defensive, but be seeking advice on how to make things better. So I think that's one thing. Yeah. Yeah, You and I both know leadership is a journey. You're never there. You never arrive. The world changes. But I think what doesn't change is I say leadership is not a title and it's not a position. It's a relationship. That does not change. So what leaders have to work on is how to get better at relationships and all relationships 
families and friends included, you know, are going to encounter some conflict or disagreement or, you know, how do you work through that? How, what are your communication skills to do that? And so those are the things that I think leaders really need to work on all the time. Sure. The reason why you got feedback from your students is clearly because you felt safe. They felt safe in giving you the feedback. You created that environment. What are some things leaders do from, from your own experience in the classroom and also from the leaders you, you interviewed? What are some things leaders do to, to create that psychological safety, that ability to sort of give input to, to allow for continuous process improvement because people feel safe in giving the input? Okay. Okay. Again, that's a very good question because I'm going to, re- I'm going to answer the question by reversing it. Right. What I've noticed over and over, both in my personal coaching experience, I'm working with a big manufacturing firm now with their culture. So they had a union, they had a union strike. And so I'm working with that. I mean, so based on my personal experience and with the re- interviews I've done, what many leaders want to do is the opposite of what they should do. When things are tough, you might have to let people go, have a layoff. You might have to have a difficult conversation. Many leaders want to hide. They do not want to be visible. And I'm on this mission to say, the minute you feel like you need to hide, that's when you need to go out. You need to be visible. Your employees need to know that you're hurting as much as they are. You know, that, and that's part of empathy. That's part of compassion. And so I see too many leaders hiding. You know, they don't want to have those conversations. They don't want to be seen or they had to make a tough decision and now they're hiding. No, you have to own it. You have to be visible. And I've had workers say to me, you know, we don't see management. Where are they? We're, you know, they're making decisions, but we don't see them. So to answer your question straight, direct, is I would say leaders need to be seen. They need to have one-on-one conversations and get beyond, it's that relationship piece again, get beyond work, you know, what? and and try to avoid yes, no questions, you know? Don't say, how was the weekend? Say, you know, what was the most interesting thing that happened this weekend? You know, what was the most fun thing that you did? Try to really, you know, develop a relationship so that you can have a conversation. And the, the leaders that I talked to, you know, I talked to Parker Palmer, you know, Marshall Goldsmith, Bill George, you know, the author of True North and former CEO, yeah. you know, all these people are just very good at relationships. And you can just tell it when I'm interviewing them. I love that. I love that. And this is kind of a theoretical question, but I'm curious if you either have research on it or just in your experience, do leaders think they need to be, they need to hide themselves, they need to avoid is it because that's true? Because like, what if shareholders don't want a leader that looks vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it because more of a cultural narrative? I, and I'm not even sure how to ask that question, but I think you get what I'm asking. What yeah, I'm asking. I would say fear. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. You know, you, you know, the buck stops here. You have to have courage. It is not easy being a leader. And I often say, I love to write about it, talk about it, read about it, teach it. But it's really hard to do. But I I do it. And, and it's interesting how, you know, I get involved in community activities and different projects. And sometimes I I just don't want to be the leader. I just want to sit back and let somebody else do it. But then it gets frustrating when nothing's getting done, you know. So 
it's hard to do. It's hard to be a leader. It's hard to be accountable. But we'd rather demonstrate courage than be a coward. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So we've been talking kind of in the abstract about leadership. I want to get a little more brass tacks and think and and learn from you. Like, what are some takeaways or some lessons you learned about leading teams and leading people? Like, you know, not just leadership sort of writ large, but actually leading people through transitions, through, you know, into new places. Any no organization that is growing can avoid leading people in new ways. Like, what's what are some lessons there? I think the key is asking questions. Yeah. So if the leader can remember to ask appropriate questions, whether they're personal or professional, personal meaning, you know, how was your weekend? Tell me what was the most interesting thing you did over the weekend. I think asking questions is a way to empower and involve others. It's a way to tap into their wisdom. It's a way for often, um, I don't, you know, one leader I've interviewed several times is Howard Behar. And he's a former president of Starbucks International. And he's really a guru on servant leadership. He's been beating that drum for a long time. And one of his quotes is, the person sweeping the floor should be able to pick the broom. Howard Behar. And what he's really saying there is people closest to the job know best how to do it. So if there's an issue or a problem, they probably know how to solve it. Just just like my students know how to make the class better for them. And I'd rather have them tell me than tell everybody else, you know. So, you know, I think asking questions. I've read a couple books and one book in particular is called, I think it's called A Beautiful Question. And it's by Warren Warren Berger. Warren Berger. Yeah. Yeah. And that's his theme. You know, ask the right questions and you'll get the answers. And people feel involved. They feel empowered. And they probably have the answers that you need to know. So I think it's important for leaders. I often say that one of the most important questions leaders can ask is, how can I support you? Because you don't know what the answer will be. And leaders should clear obstacles, not be the obstacle. Right. Yeah. So I think asking questions. Yeah. And I love that Warren Burger book. Another little infomercial here or quick commercial is read the Warren Burger. Warren Burger is that? Yeah. The bi- yeah. beautiful questions. Yeah. Absolutely. The, a great book. And, you know, it's interesting because some of my clients are, are worried. Some of my corporate clients are worried. Like, what are we supposed to do with this chat GPT phenomenon that's happening? You know, ask it to write you some questions. Like if you're bad at questions, you now have this free resource on your on the internet for writing good questions. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. Well, if it's here to stay, we might as well try to find out ways to use it appropriately. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've heard you talk about servant leadership. I want to get to breadcrumb legacy and talk about legacy leadership. But I've heard you talk about servant leadership. Are you sort of connected in with the Robert Greenleaf? model or like what does servant leadership mean to you when you when you use that phrase? Yeah. Well, I'm familiar with Robert Green. I mean, he really was the pioneer or founder, you know, yeah. and then I followed his work and that led me to Peter Senge. I actually went to a workshop with Peter Senge when he was yeah. at that was probably 2004 when he, right. you know, he coined the phrase systems thinking, but also a big believer in servant leadership. When I use that phrase, it kind of goes back to what I just said, that leaders should clear obstacles and not be the obstacle, that leaders 
should there you're there to make everybody's job easier. Right. Okay? That's why you're there. People are doing what they what they're paid to do, but they need maybe someone to help them coordinate or, you know, eliminate issues or, you know, collaborate. So the whole idea is you're there to serve others. So it's not really leadership isn't really about yourself. And it's really to lift up others. One quote that I put in my leading with wisdom book is uh, this came from uh, I was a Tim Russert fan. Oh, and yeah. Tim Russert's memorial service, he had the same executive assistant for 17 years. And she you, she said, Tim's definition of exercise, because we all know he struggled with his weight. Yeah. Tim's definition of exercise was lift, uh, bending over and lifting someone else up. You know, <laughs> that leaders should lift up others. Right. And I just like that metaphor of, you know, he was always, he was trying to help others. Well, that to me, that's servant leadership. Yeah. I love that definition. I, and I love that story. I, I watched part of Tim Russert's funeral, but I don't remember that line. So that's a great line. So legacy, let's talk about the breadcrumb legacy and the idea of leaving the legacy behind. What does that look like from a leader's perspective? As I said, it was the leaders, leaders live their legacy. And that was the chapter in Leading with Wisdom that I had many workshops on. And in the workshop, I would ask people, I would say, well, when do we leave our legacy? And people would say, well, when we leave, when we leave a job, leave a career, retire, when we leave the earth when we die. And I'd say, yeah, that's true. What about when I leave this workshop? What about when we leave a conversation? What about, you know, every interaction, every decision, every behavior is part of leaving a legacy, which then I trademarked the phrase breadcrumb legacy that we're leaving our crumbs all the time and they accumulate and they add up. But I think what's important for leaders to remember is because it's happening all the time and it accumulates, it's not necessarily always positive. Right. You know, it kind of goes back to, you know, why good leaders go bad. There are plenty of leaders who are leaving a bad track record. And here's kind of a more humorous story, but this is a, a year or two ago. And I don't know if your listeners will, this kind of shows my age, but I don't know if your listeners will remember who Tom Jones is. Tom Jones, the singer. Yeah. And I saying what goes up must come down spinning wheels i don't know he but he had some he had a lot of hits in the probably late 70s early 80s i don't know but the the title of the article was i'm i'm turning 80 it's time to think about my legacy and so as i'm reading this article i'm thinking <laughs> well and then in the article he says you know i guess i already have one well i wonder if it's too late to change my legacy well one of the things that I say is, yeah, he has one, but he certainly hadn't been thinking about it. I mean, with breadcrumb legacy, my premise is if we think about it, then we can be more intentional and we can live our life in a way that we want to live, hmm. live in a way that we want to be remembered. And in a workshop not too long ago, I was talking about this concept and one of the parts, one of the leaders said, well, don't you find that self-centered that you're thinking? thinking about your legacy all the time, you're thinking about your legacy on a daily impact or daily basis. And I said, well, let's, let's remove the word legacy. Let's, let's talk about impact. What kind of impact are you having on people? Do you think that's 
self-centered to be thinking about the difference that you're making on a daily basis. Because if you're not thinking about it, you could be really creating a toxic environment. You could be making, you know, really bad, a bad impact for others and not even know it if you're not thinking about it. So that's where I'm coming from, Will. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate that. Let's talk about leaders. And then I want to also transition into we, you know, the rest of us who are may, may have leadership, but we also have sort of daily lives. How do leaders maybe think about the legacy they want to leave behind. Like what, if you were to take the listeners through a quick exercise or just through a thought, you know, a couple of questions, like how do you know what, what you should leave behind? Like what's, how do you know what your legacy should be? Well, let me tell you, I got on, okay. So I started this research in like 2005 and I developed a undergraduate course because my institution only teaches undergraduates. I developed an undergraduate leadership course based on what I was learning before before Leading with Wisdom even came out. So probably in about 2008, I created this course, and I don't know where I originally got the idea. I do not know. But I created this assignment, and I introduce it early, and then it's not due until the very end of class. And the assignment is they have to write their own eulogy. Now, eulogy in 2008 sounded more different from an obituary. Now they're kind of sounding very similarly. And I don't really know why. I think it's because now you have to pay for I think in most papers, you used to get so many lines free and now you have to pay for it. I think (laughs) if people are going to pay for it, they're like, I'm going to tell them everything I want them to know. But they used to be, you know, used to be that obituaries focused more on doing. What has the person done? Accomplishments. Where did they work? What clubs were they involved in? That kind of thing. Eulogies have always focused on the being. What kind of person are you? Character. So I would say to students, and I have I collect these, so I have examples and and I have them watch Tim Russert's memorial service because there, you know, there were like five people who spoke, and each one is just an expert with words because they come out of journalism. And then I say, all right, there are only certain requirements. One, that it's mandatory. You have to do it. Two, you know right now that you're going to have to share it in 15 weeks uh, with the class. And three, it's not graded. So you cannot do it wrong. There are and no feedback. We don't talk about them. We just share them. And we just wow. listen and share. And what's interesting about this, Will, is I, so I've been doing this exercise. And now I do it. I teach a graduate leadership course for the University of Iowa, just one course a year. But so I've been doing this since like 2008. And then David Brooks comes out with his book, Second Mountain. Yep. And in the and I don't know when that came out, like, I don't know, 2016, 17, I don't know, we could look it yes. up. And yeah. Then that book came out. And in his book, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, he's made it very, so he talks about Resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. Resume virtues, those things that you would list on a resume, and eulogy virtues, virtues, those things that you really want to be remembered. So I think the fastest way to get to this is, you know, I mean, it has been the most moving exercise for all of my students. And if your listeners are interested, I do have a TEDx talk. And it's called Embracing Death, Seeing Life Through a Different Lens. 
And I explain how I teach students, undergraduate students, age 20 to 22, how to live a life worth remembering. So I would encourage your listeners, you can, you can find that on YouTube. Yeah. Embracing death, seeing life through a different lens. I think it's just the best exercise ever. Because if, because, and then what I say to students, you know, I, I presented the research at professional conferences when I was still teaching full time. And I would have colleagues of mine say, you do this exercise. You, you have undergraduates do that. And I said, yeah, because the point is, if that's how they want to be remembered, then they need to start living like that now. Start now. And the yeah. earlier, the better. That's why I say my breadcrumb legacy book, it's really for people of all ages and stages of life. Yeah. 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 Isn't that true? We we so often start thinking about legacy and eulogy and these lasting virtues as we near the end of our career and our life, when in fact they should be informing everything we do. Because we don't know when the end is. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Who was it? Randy Pass? Was that his name? The guy who did the last lecture? In, yeah. Uh, yeah. In, yeah. Carnegie yeah. Mellon. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely powerful. And I mean, he had the advantage of knowing not exact, not the exact day he would die, but knowing he was dying, Absolutely. he had the chance to leave that lecture. I love yeah. that. And I love, I love what you shared. So how does that question, so the legacy we want to leave behind, how does that relate to our sense of purpose and kind of how we're supposed to show up in the world? What can we learn about ourselves and our, I don't want to, I don't want to make too great a distinction between leadership and non-leadership, but often what we're doing is ordinary leadership. It's not, you know, organizational leadership. How does that inform, how does the eulogy exercise inform how we should live on a daily basis? Yeah. Well, I say it should be your true north. It should be yeah. your moral compass. It should be your guiding star. And I say that the most important person to lead is yourself. Yeah. So that's why all of these concepts, really, it starts with self. And I would say that I also kind of, I, I don't think I have this in any book. I do talk about purpose a lot, purpose and meaning, but I also sometimes use the metaphor of, you know, we need to have our values invisibly tattooed on our forehead. I mean, we have to really know what we stand for. And then your values drive your behaviors. Yeah. So if something's really important to you, that value will prevent you from getting off track or prevent, or if you have gotten off track, that value will help you apologize or ask for forgiveness or try to make amends. If you have a strong value that, you know, again, it, it, so I think, you know, it all works together. It's kind of like the body. It's a system. You don't just have a, right. a heart or hands, you know, it all works together. So I think, you know, the values and uh, purpose and mission in life, it all works together. Yeah, I love that. If you were to sort of give people some directions to take, so we'll, we'll put up a link to your TEDx talk, by the way. So I really okay. appreciate that resource. But what are some other things in addition to all the books by Dr. Jan Fried you yeah. should be reading? And then we'll put up links to uh, Breadcrumb, Breadcrumb Legacy and Leading with Wisdom in the show notes. What are some other People, uh, either individuals, voices that people could be tuning into, because this question of purpose, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of just junk okay. out there. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, like, what, where would you, where do you send people to? What do you, what's your syllabi? Okay. What, what's your, what's your reading list? That, that's really good. That's really good. I like it. Well, you know, it's funny because I, my friends, 
you know, I just don't read a lot of novels. Yeah. I read a lot. I read, I mean, I'm constantly, re- I, I subscribe to a lot of great newsletters. I read, you know, newspapers. I read books, but I just don't read novels. <laughs> right. You know, now and then I do, but uh, most of the time I don't because I'm reading all this other stuff. Okay. And I find it fascinating. So I would say for purpose, my favorite is Richard Leiter, L-E-I-D-E-R. And he's been, he's, he's known as the purpose guy. <laughs> now there are a lot of people out there, but he's been at this for probably 40 years and he's written several books. One is The Power of Purpose, Repacking Your Bag. Yep. My favorite of his is Claiming Your Place at the Fire because he, I don't know if he still does this, but for years he would take CEOs and senior leadership teams to vision quests in Africa and a country in Africa, I think Kenya. And uh, so for purpose, I would say Richard Leiter is like my favorite. I like work now. I follow a lot with, um, well, I think Simon Sinek is good. I, I, I wish I, he has his daily notes of inspiration. Right. And, um, every time I get a note, which is daily, you know, it's like, Oh, why didn't I think of that? He's very good with words. Simon Sinek, but I really like the work of Adam Grant and oh, both of these podcasts. I can't say that I've listened to Simon's very much, but I like Adam Grant's podcast a lot. I listen to his a lot and follow him and his work. Cause you know, with each, you know, like when I think about the chapters in my book, leading with wisdom, you know, I've got, I've got people that I like on all of those topics. Um, you know, when you're doing ego work, you know, then you really need to kind of follow or read like some psychotherapists. One is one that I like is David Rico, R-I-C-H-O. And he's written a lot about the dark side of the ego, the shadow side. I like him a lot. And I would also mention, I have a virtual TEDx talk on YouTube called Becoming a Nobody. And that's all about ego. Okay. That's all yeah. about ego. So that's Becoming a Nobody. If you could include that too, I well, that would be good. I do have favorites. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so Goldsmith just wrote a book called The Earned Life, which is a lot, which is a lot of legacy work. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm familiar with that book. Great yeah, book. Two women leadership gurus that I like are Margaret Wheatley. And uh, Sally Helgeson. So yeah. those are two women that I, I follow. And then I think, you know, in my Breadcrumb Legacy book, I talk a lot about curiosity and creativity. And one of the most creative people, and I interviewed him for Breadcrumb Legacy. One of the most creative people is Rob Walker. And his book is called The Art of Noticing. But oh, wow. he's like a I think it's a weekly newsletter called The Art of Noticing that I subscribe to. So some of these newsletters that I take, they're not just free. I pay for them because sure. they're really full of resources. And his is called The Art of Noticing. And he is just one very creative guy. I so love those resources. Thank you. So we're nearing the end, but I want to kind of pose a really big picture question. So sometimes I get the privilege of interviewing people like you that have a really big view of of a particular question. So in your case, it's, you know, what does it look like to lead toward a legacy? So what I want you to do, it's kind of a thought experiment, but I want you to think, I want you to imagine that 
the world's the world leaders are listening to this podcast and they're tuning into what you're laying down. And I want you to imagine that you know, 15 to 20 years from now, they have started to take, they've they've read Leading with Wisdom, they've read Breadcrumb Legacy, they've kind of listened to the words you're saying and they've taken it seriously. How could the world be changed and improved if they if people were to begin to lead with a legacy? One of my conclusions in leading with wisdom was that it's hard to be a good leader if you're not a good person. So I think I would say that if they read both of these books and they're trying to follow these principles, that the world would be better because we would have more humanistic leaders. We would have people that realize they don't know all the answers. If they've made a mistake, they're willing to admit it. They're willing to apologize. They're willing to surround themselves with people who compliment them, who might know more than they do on certain topics. They lead with compassion and empathy and that they understand grief and dying and that because they have healthy coping mechanisms, they can help people. Because that's one thing we didn't have time to talk about, Will, but both of my books I address, I address grief, loss, dying. Because industries are dying, companies are disappearing, people are losing jobs. And that happened in 2008 with the financial crisis and after. And then when COVID hit, millions of lives, and then that just has a ripple effect. So again, this whole idea of grief, loss, and dying is included in both of my books. And the world would just be a better place. Well, that sounds like a reason to have you back on. (laughs) <laughs> we can so talk, we can the talk about that. We can talk sure. the whole time on that topic and what I've learned about that topic. And yeah. I'm a just volunteer because of it. Yeah. Oh, oh wow. Wow. Yeah. I uh, I know someone who is training to be a death doula. And yes. that's just yeah, that's that's good work for for those of you that can do it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm constitutionally prepared for that work, but I but I appreciate those of you that work in hospice and sort of ushering people off of this planet. So that's great work. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you and thank you for being here. This was a a masterclass in leadership leading with a legacy. So thank you. I look forward to sharing this uh this interview with my audience. And I'll just say one thing that If people go to my website, janfreed.com, two N's and two E's, I do have a monthly newsletter they could subscribe to. And then I have a podcast called Becoming a Sage, where I interview people about wisdom. Yeah. And they could get a monthly podcast. And there's also a 20% discount code on my homepage. Now, it takes longer to get the book than Amazon, but it saves you 20%. So I just wanted to make that pitch. That's great. Thank you. Because that was my next question. How do people find you? And you already answered it ahead of time. So thank you so much. Yeah. And I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. I'm I'm getting up to speed on Instagram. I was slow to the game, but I'm I'm working on it because now now I'm seeing the connection. So but LinkedIn, I'm definitely visible. That's great. Jan Free, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll put all that information in the show notes so people can find all those resources. And thank you. Thank you.